Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Rolex Whiskey Passion Project. And today I have a gentleman on that I met recently at Universal Whiskey that I just knew I had to have on the show. I'd like to welcome today Mr. Joe Hyman of Bonham Skinner. Joe, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. Got a couple of drams in front of me. and uh, I know, and I got her soon. Just... Just for the listeners to know, Joe sent me a Highland whiskey of the highest quality and very old, circa 1930s, from Basil Wood and Sons, and a Ballantine circa 1950, 43%, which I'm super excited to try. But before we see, you know, when you're drinking at your leisure, Joe, enjoy yourself. I'm going to dick up into these. Tell me a little bit about your whiskey journey. How did it start? Well, way back when I drank blends like most people. Blends drive the the market even today. I drank mostly Johnny Walker Black when I wanted scotch. Later on, I started to see more of the the single malts became more and more available into the 90s. And I drank the the simple stuff, what what would be considered entry level at this point, uh, Glenn Livid, Glenn Fittick, 12-year-olds. We always had this fascination with a bottle that my father had, which he had purchased for his father back in the 1950s. It was a Ballantine's 30-year-old, which was, at the time, the super premium that was available. I mean, So, so Joe, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold you for one second, because sure. you're in a very interesting time period. I also grew up, you know, blended. Johnny Walker Black was my choice. But there really wasn't a lot of choices. So when you started drinking Johnny Walker Black and and the blends, I mean, what did what did a Scotch market look like? What did a, what were you, what were your options at that point? The options were you know the run of the mill stuff, either Dewar's, Johnny Walker, uh, Red or or Black were like the normal ones. I mean, the top shelf stuff would be, let's say, the Gold or something like that. But you know. As a poor college student, who's gonna who's gonna pay for that? You know, it was like yeah, you know, for 40, 40, 50 bucks for a bottle. That's like crazy money. <laughs> and you know, you you know, people walk into a bar and don't blink at paying forty bucks for a half ounce of something. It's like a completely different ball game now. But yeah, yeah, the usual stuff was out there. The Doers White Label, you know, and all these brands also. And and they met the, and they met the needs of well. the buyer, right? But they were meeting the needs of the consumer. Like nobody really wanted anything else. Like well, they had met I don't the think. Need. I don't think for the most part nobody knew anything else. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, exactly. you had a very, very small, small um, portion of the population that knew about this other stuff. And when, when the more I look into it, you see that there was stuff was available. It was really hard to find in the U.S., but it was available. Uh, Jack Gross uh, used to bring in single malts going back to like the 1950s and 1960s. Cadenhead had bottlings. There was Gordon McPhail's. There was Cadenhead's. I mean, to find official bottlings, you know, that you don't really see much of that until the 1960s or so. But, I mean, there was stuff available back when, too. Uh, McAllen was available, and you could, get them, you could get them here. I mean, they were really hard to find. You had to go to a real specialty guy to, to find it. But... For the people that were in the know, I mean, you could get that stuff, and it wasn't crazy, crazy expensive. It was more expensive 
often than than the regular stuff and still yeah. is but but you know back then you know it wasn't outrageous to to spend you know 20% more on on a uh, uh, single malt versus and, and again they were all 90% of the single malts available in the US were were all independent bottlers to begin with again mostly Cadenhead and uh, and Gordon and McPhail which well, was, was dealing with a very I mean I got to imagine like on the east coast it was probably more prevalent than it was on the west coast I don't remember seeing a lot of that on the west but the east coast seemed to have better a better scotch foundation but it's, I, although it's kind of like yeah yeah i would say so because a lot of the stuff came came in through new york baltimore boston um so you know it was it was readily available oh i wouldn't say readily available but more available in those markets than it was elsewhere you know it's it's kind of like today where where you have like these far-flung markets that don't have um access to to the allocated stuff like the bigger markets do it, so it's it's hard to find some of the van winkle items let's say in in a you know far-flung place way out of the normal course of business you know to find to find uh, those you know what they call unicorns today but it's like anything that's <laughs> allocated is really hard is really hard to find in in some of those markets and and even some of those things in the bigger markets is hard to find so you can imagine what it was like 60s years and ago when it, when it yeah. wasn't available so you know, now like, so now like let's, the 90s let's, where things really started to blossom and what did you see in the 90s let's let's go to the 90s now where you said now you you know you're not as much johnny walker black and now you're kind of seeing other stuff like what does that other stuff look like well the other stuff was Again, you've had the Gordon and McPhail's bottlings were available, and and you started to see other other things starting to filter into like the classic malts from Diageo, Lagavulin, and Oban, and and Kalila, and some of these other things started to filter into the into the marketplace. And, but are you see are you, you seeing know, them on shelf in restaurants? To find stuff. Um, less less so in restaurants, but more so in in specialty shops you know yeah. I, I remember back in the 90s when what used to be the malt advocate and it became the whiskey advocate in the back in the ads it would it would have like these stores that have these large selections and if you had a if they had a hundred selections of single malts i mean that was phenomenal now <laughs> now your, your average corner store has a hundred you know and it was like it was and it was in tears. If it had two hundred, it was amazing. And then, it, it, it was maybe a handful of stores in the entire United States that had three hundred or more things available. In you know, and this is this is the late nineties, into the early two thousands, and then then things just started to explode, and and they came out with all kinds of different bottlings, and each each brand had had multiple bottlings, you know. Once upon a time, if you saw, maybe there was one or two different things. There might be like a no age statement in a 12 year old, you know, 12 year old and a 17 year old or something like that. And, and that would be it, you know, maybe once every 10 years, they'd come out with like some super duper limited edition, something or other. But by and large, you know, they were, they were catering to the masses as opposed to the, the, you know, the specialty enthusiasts. 
Yeah, and, and I got to imagine you walk into these stores, they had a top shelf. There was stuff that was like you could aspire to buying. Hey, right. you know, you want right. to spend $300? We got this for you, but woo. Right. You know, you're or a big spender. In the lock, lock case behind the counter. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and these guys, you know, obviously inventory is a big thing, so they don't want to carry too much inventory that's not moving. So it's like this delicate dance of like, well, how much of our portfolio, how much of my store do I want to allocate to stuff that, takes months to move as opposed to stuff that can move quicker. Right. right. Well, think about it this way. When when Black Bamore came out, they couldn't sell it. Nobody wanted to take it. It was it was the first the first one was like $150, $200 a bottle. I mean, that, that that's 30 years ago. That's insane. <laughs> you want to tell people what that, what $200 for you a bottle of whiskey? That, that, that Do you want to tell people, to Joe, with that? So, in, in order to get the regular Bumore twelve-year-old on 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 their shelves, they had they had to buy the, the a black Bumore in order to to have access to like a couple of cases of Bumore twelve. So that game was being played the whole time. Hey, you want hey, you want that? You got to buy this. Yeah, well, they learned early on. They you know they couldn't move <laughs> that pricey stuff. Now now it's the other way around. You got to buy. You got to buy a pallet of one thing in order to get the one allocated bottle uh, to put in your showcase. That with the I don't want to sell it price. Oh wait, and and by the way, you're a whiskey store, but you still got to buy champagne because that's the only way we're giving you that allocated whiskey. And you're like, well, what do I do with the champagne? Ah, you could become a champagne and whiskey store. <laughs> it's a sh- okay. So okay, let's keep. So now we're in the nineties. What are, what what are you gravitating towards drinking? Well, uh, the First things I started leaning towards were the main malts that were in the major brands that I happened to like. And it wasn't necessarily intentional. It just happened to work out that way. Maybe my palate was attuned to them to begin with because I was drinking them in those blends that that I gravitated towards things like Strathyla, which is in Chivas, and Mortlach, and, and Cardu. And, and some of these things that are uh, ubiquitous now, but, you know, back then they were, you know, you couldn't get them. You know, Mordlach didn't come here as, as a single malt except by independence. You know, it's, it's, it's more in the last five, ten years that, that the, they've been selling Mordlach here as, as a standalone, you know, official bottling. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd say, I wouldn't even say ten. I would go five. I mean, it just seems like. You know, now they got a 20 and a 30 and they're coming, they're coming hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the whole thing evolved uh, over time and, and consumers evolved with it. Yeah. And you, kind of and like you as a drinker? A symbiotic uh, relationship there. Oh, hundred percent. And you as a drinker, are you, you know, is this something that you're like, Hey, I really like this. I'm going to keep expanding my, my, my loose education and learn more. That's exactly how it started because you know, my my father bought a bottle of thirty year old Valentines for his father back in the nineteen fifties, and you know he put it on a shelf and he looked at it and he waited for a special occasion and the special occasion never came uh, or suitably and, and my father inherited the bottle back so he put it on a shelf and he looked at it for another thirty years and and waited for a special occasion to come, you know. It, it's one of those things. And, you know, even in, in high school and whatnot, when we were like 
snatching stuff out of the uh, liquor cabinets or whatever. We knew that was the one bottle you don't touch. Eventually, at my brother's engagement party, my oldest brother, we opened it up. And like that was, I guess, the light switch moment that, wow, there's, there's something bigger and better out there. And it's time to start searching for that stuff, too. I started looking at the other types of single malts and looking towards um, the more specialty stores. I think some of the early stuff I was getting as as official bottlings were Cardew, 12-year-old, Longmorn, 15-year-old, in the short, dumpy bottle, and, and things like that. You know, Gordon McPhail was was more available in the Boston area, so I was, I was picking up uh, stuff of the, like a Mortlock 15 that they had for years and years and years. The Connoisseur's Choice line was was on the shelves in in the specialty stores nearby. That was like my first my first experience with Port Ellen was some fucked up labels on the Connoisseur's Choice 1974 16 year olds, and they were in the discount. They were in the, they were in the they were in the clearance bin at like a third of the pro, the original price. They were like. $60 or something at the time on was the original sticker. And I think I got them at, at half or a third of that. And I said, Oh, this looks interesting. You know, I've never seen this before. And, and I picked one up and this is probably easily 25 years ago or more. I took it home. I opened it up and I was yeah. like, wow, wow. And then even at 40%, you know, my palate wasn't attuned to, uh, the really cask strength stuff yet. Yeah. So, so even at 40%, I mean, that, it was like packed with flavor and I'm going, oh my goodness, this is a, uh, I went back the next day, there were two more in the bin. I grabbed those too. And, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's the way it happens. And then, uh, uh, you know, just, just keep going. Uh, are you in, at this point of your life, are you in the whiskey space or you're doing something else? I run whiskey auctions for the last 11 years or so. I mean, I was pretty much, you know, a, a hardcore enthusiast for a long time. And then I was looking to uh, break into the industry somehow. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not from a sales background. I'm more from no, and that's, a and that's analyst like, background. So, 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 yeah, so, in the so 19th, it was hard breaking this... into the, get a, you can't get a brand ambassador position unless you're either a, a salesman or you start as an intern and work your way up, or you move sideways from another company or something like that. So I went for a few years looking for something and I kept getting uh, the door shut in my face until finally, you know, John Hansel from the Whiskey Advocate was a friend of mine and he said, hey, you just did a bottoms job. This is uh, 11 years ago. And, and there was like, I was trying to get through and I wasn't getting any, any results by emailing them. They were looking for somebody to do the whiskey auctions in New York. And I, so he said, Hey, yeah, I, you know, because he was, he was bought out by, uh, Marvin Shankin, wine spectator and cigar aficionado, et cetera. And through, through him, he met the CEO of Bonham's US and he said, yeah, I'll just put in the work for you. And then, you know, it was like, Oh, okay. And they contacted me and said, Hey, send us your information. We'll, uh, we'll get things going. And, uh, a month later, I started doing whiskey auctions for them. But so, when you're buying these 1974 Gordon McPhails, you're not involved. You're just a guy who enjoys drinking. I was just, good I was just some guy liking liking those kinds of whiskeys. <laughs> so, so, so you say 11 years. It's you spent a good 20 years just having fun and you know chasing your 
your palate, trying new stuff. Correct. Oh, sure, sure. Like everybody so, else, so, you know, like I go back through my 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 uh, storage uh, bins, and and I find things that I bought twenty something years ago that you know, I probably wouldn't take a second look at today, but back then it was like, oh, this is interesting, and they were cheap too. I mean, some of those. You know, independent bottlers that that had some like really good stuff at 40, 43 percent and young, eight, 10, 12 years old. But they were they were really good. Sometimes I break them out just to remember what they were. But, uh, you know, I think people's palates evolve and their tastes evolve and, you know, they get palate boredom as well. So they're always looking for something else. Yeah, sometimes sometimes you have uh, special items that that you know kind of morph in the glass too. So so you're getting a little bit more nuanced, and I think that's one of the one of the reasons why I, I'm fascinated by the old blends is that there are a lot of different characteristics in them, and it's not like a one trick pony to a large degree. Okay, sometimes with the with the the entry level stuff, the no age stated stuff, yeah, because there's other it's, it's a little bit hard to to bring up uh everything um but on on the 12 year olds on up it's a uh, uh they start getting like really fascinating because they're putting mixing in a lot of older whiskeys in those 12 year olds and 18 year olds and you know it using 30 or 40 different whiskeys in the blends it it kind of like evens out the highs and evens out the lows and it makes it a more balanced whiskey, but you still get certain characteristics out of out of some of the main uh, ingredients. So here you are, you're buying whiskey, you're enjoying whiskey. Now you tell me, you know, 11 years ago, you go into the auction space. What does the auction space look like 11 years ago for whiskey? It was burgeoning. I mean, there was there were a few places in in uh, Scotland, London, uh, Europe, Hong Kong, the first whiskey auction in in the U.S. was uh, at Bonhams in New York in 2009, and you know it was it was relatively a, a new thing, so it was people had no idea they could suddenly sell stuff that they hadn't on their shelves. <laughs> And and the price. Well, and they also up. didn't know what it was like, worth, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you got a gift from something, or you bought something, yeah. and you put it away. And there were some some people who had bought, gone to Kentucky and bought uh, bourbons, even that you know today are worth thousands upon thousands of dollars a bottle that they paid ten bucks for or twenty bucks for. Well, they they brought four back. They drank three of them, and then they forgot about one. Because they, they probably got bored with it and they were on to something else. So, oh, well, is this worth anything? They, yeah, I can get 500 bucks for it. You know, and 10 years ago, that 500 bucks is now, in some cases, 5,000. Uh, yeah, I mean, I look at those, I look at those Linnell Red Hook Rise, you know, <laughs> for $80,000. Right, right. Certainly a retail, and you, you might be looking at 30000 40000 at at um at auction. You know, the Willets, some of that yeah. stuff, crazy money. What was that? Like 11 years ago, it's it's a very tight group. I mean, you're putting stuff up. I would imagine, you know, Bonhams is spending money. They, ha they have a group of people that buy. 
And whiskeys, even 11 years ago, is not like it's not flying off and getting printed up in the newspaper that we sold something, you know, like it's just like it's another auction kind of. In, in some ways, but I mean, there were rumblings in the media when something special came along. 60-something-year-old Macallan one-off in La Ligue that was sold on uh, whatever it was, Ellis Island for, uh, uh, for charity, and some guy mm-hmm. spent uh, half a million dollars on it. Yeah, that, that gets news, and I think uh, from there it started to like, spread. And- I mean, I was buying Japanese whiskey on auction, and nobody was even looking at them. I would be like, oh, I was like, this is insane. I want to buy, you know, Suntory. And this is only eight, nine years ago. I can't even imagine 11 years ago, you're talking about bourbons and, and these scotches. It's like, it was like, I would tell people the auctions are like my honey hole because no one else is like really, first of all, I'm buying them on scotch auction houses. So they, they like, they don't even want the Japanese whiskey or the bourbon on there. And then like about a half dozen years ago, it just exploded. On auction, I saw you're in the business. Did you see that same? All of a sudden, like five, six years ago, it was like boom. No, it was a, it was a steady, steady growth, pretty much. There were certain things that would they would jump by twenty, thirty percent in a year, whole whole genres, and then it would it would settle down, and then something else would jump up, and then you know two years later, the first thing would jump back up again. They're kind of like leapfrogging each other, and I guess I guess the investors started getting involved too. So yep. so that was pushing things up, and people weren't weren't letting things go. So there's fewer of those things available, so the prices kept going up. Well, I, so I I tell people, you know, what makes a bottle scarce? First of all, a bottle that had a limited release number, and it was released during a period when nobody cared, so they drank it. It's like your story, you know, the guy goes to Kentucky buys four, drinks one, drinks three, and it's like, eh, hey, I heard these auctions are kind of cool. I'll send a couple of bottles because, like, I don't have any more space left in my house. And it's like, whoa, that jumped from what I paid for 10 bucks. Now 500 That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, well, 10, 10 years ago, George T. Stagg was, was like 500 at auction, 400 Yeah. You know, that's that was for, like, the 2002, 2003 releases. Now... Now the 2003, uh, 2002 releases are, are 4,000, 5,000 at auction. And for you in the auction space, are you seeing more sellers coming recently? Because maybe some people woke up to the fact that this was actually worth a lot of money or that growth as far as sellers has continued to grow. Yes. You know, certainly, certainly the, the people and they, they had more disposable income and were buying a lot more. Mm-hmm. Working with a friend of mine right now, he he had was spending a thousand dollars a week on whiskey back in the day, and he had thousands of bottles, you know, still sealed, and yeah. you know it, hundreds that were open, and he was drinking those, and then he decided he was uh, close to close to retirement age, and you know, he got laid off during during uh, COVID, and he took his is pay out and and paid off his mortgage and then decided you know what i really don't want to go back to work and he had paid in uh, the max for for social security for so long that he figured that it wasn't going to hurt him too bad to, to start taking it at 62 in the meantime he started selling off his uh 
his collection and all his pricey stuff. And, you know, it's, you know, $800,000 in and he's got like another 100000 to go. And he, he says that's going to, it's probably going to take him until 70 at least. And then, and then, you know, he'll worry about it then. <laughs> oh, man. Now for you in the auction space being around, obviously also a lot more. Are there any standout experiences that you've had with whiskey where you're like, holy shit? Pretty much when, when these crazy bottles come around, it, it just astounds me that they're st- they still exist. You know, you get bottles from the 1800s. It's, it's insane. I sold a bottle of, uh, uh, of whiskey a couple of years ago. It was, uh, I, I refer to it as the red violin of, of whiskey bottles. Cause it like went through so many different hands and famous people and, and eventually, uh, you know, some guy, you know, paid a record price for uh, for an American whiskey. Yeah, I was I was concerned people were going to be, uh, you know, complain about it because there was no capsule on it, and it's like, oh, I'll prove prove that it's real, you know. Yeah. So I, I I asked the guy, can I? I found a lab that would it would do testing, carbon dating. I needed two milliliters. So I asked the guy if, if if I can go through the 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 cork with a hypodermic and draw out to do it safely, you know, if I ever thought I was going to destroy the cork, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, yeah. But he said he said, "Yeah, if it's going to if it's going to make things, you know, more more suitable." Yeah, you know, so yeah, so we did it and uh we documented it, we videotaped me, you know, drawing the sample out and 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 you know, sealing it up and and sending it off and and it came back as like 195 years old plus or minus uh, 15 with a high probability of being before 1800 which is a bit sensational i agree but uh you know of course we're going to go with it and and yeah, yeah, yeah. and 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 it was at, at that it was the uh, oldest oldest known whiskey at the time and uh, and it, you know it it had been in uh, J.P. Morgan's collection. It was like in every step of the way, we we had tracking it back and and corroborating the story that that this this guy was telling. That you know, they had it. They've had they had that bottle in their in their uh, family for three generations. The bottle was given to the grandfather by James Burns of South Carolina, who who at the time was in FDR's cabinet back in in around 1940. Two, yeah. Jack Morgan showed up in Washington, and you know and this guy, this guy Burns was like crazy, off the charts uh, accomplished as far as like politics and whatever goes. I mean, he was he was a judge in South Carolina, and then he he ran for Congress, and he spent several terms in Congress, and then he ran for the Senate, and he spent a couple of terms in the Senate. Then around 1941. FDR appointed him to the Supreme Court. So he spent six months on the Supreme Court. He's 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 documented as the shortest tenured Supreme Court justice because six months later we we got dragged into World War II and FDR had him resign from the court so he could join the cabinet for the war war effort. And then you know, somewhere around nineteen forty you know in forty five when Truman took over for for um for FDR Truman Truman made him secretary of state 
he was Secretary of State until 1947, and he left Washington, went back to South Carolina, and ran for governor, and was spent a term in, as governor. So he's he's one of about four or five people in U.S. history who's been at the absolute top of of government in every branch. You know, he's, he's and he and he never opened up all the whiskey. No, he's he's <laughs> he's to South Carolina what what like JFK is to up here in Massachusetts. So yeah, so. You know, he gave this bottle, Jack Morgan gifted him this bottle. He gave them out to other people too. And I, I assume it's around 1942 because that's when Burns would have been hanging out with FDR instead of at the, at the Supreme Court. And Morgan died in 43. So it's probably somewhere in 1942. Supposedly, Morgan boasted that it was from his father's collection and it predated the Civil War. We were able to track down uh, an article in, in the Baltimore Sun back in 1976 that was talking about a bottle collection in the Hamden House, Towson, which is right outside of Baltimore. And it's a historical site, and they had this huge bottle collection. They never threw anything away. And in the article, they discuss how they had, they had um, you know, all this old wine and stuff spirits and they were old money, you know, 150 years ago and then, you know, fell on hard times and and eventually around the turn of the century, JP Morgan Sr. showed up and bought the entire collection for about $7600. At least, at least <laughs> that's how much that's how much that's how much the the archivist told me they they got for it. It was around 1902. So so in the article, they said, yeah, Morgan came along around the turn of the century and bought out the entire collection. And the only things whiskey-wise they have left are empty bottles of old Ingledew whiskey, which is this bottle. So the archivist had given me a the typewritten inventory from 1901. And the very last line, you know, and, and, and the anything that wasn't on this list, anything that wasn't like local Maryland rye didn't have any vintage dates on it. It had the purchase dates approximately. And the very last line said old bourbon around 1860. So, so there, there we had confirmation of, of Morgan's boast, but I, I think the bottle itself was bottled around 1866 and that it was probably a uh, typo in saying 1860 but so he was it was right for the wrong reasons but uh anyways whiskey is a lot older than that yeah i mean yeah, it, yeah. It, it, the principles the principles of 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 the company of you know, this general store down in georgia that bottled this stuff they were like 20 years old when the war began there was no way there was no way that that they had this company uh bottling whiskey at at 20 21 years old in 1860 I mean, the guy, the guy was eight, you know, 21 or something in 18, uh, 24, 1861. He came back the, the war hero to, 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 to his hometown. And I guess he was the front man for the business. It's uh it's just like a crazy bottle that it's been all over the place and these people never drank it. So it's, uh, and, you know, they says they were, they were Scotch drinkers. They didn't want it. They didn't want it. They didn't want it. Well, I mean, that's a catch whiskey because history. It was from James Burns. It yeah. was James Burns' gift, so of course they. Oh, he was like a god. 
down there. So, of course, they were going to keep it. That's wild. Well, yeah. give me something, state of the industry. Where do you see it going? Is this a bubble or is this just life as it is now and keep on moving? I think the pricey stuff is going to keep on going up and the ordinary stuff is going to settle back down a little bit and there might be there might be some corrections coming up. I mean, I think some of these down, you mentioned. Et cetera, et cetera. I think that the ordinary stuff that started to become high flying, you know, all these all these craft distilleries and whatnot that are getting yeah. hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a bottle. Uh, I yeah. think that some of that stuff is going to come back to earth and, and the stuff that's really, you know, tried and true and long-term tested is probably going to keep going. I mean, I, I think we also have... have double digit increases as such, but I think it's going to be the, uh, you know, they'll, they'll still keep going up and they'll still be, they'll still be value there. I mean, I because see that people you, are drinking. you mentioned earlier. No, but you mentioned earlier, like these investors that came in in the last dozen years, a lot of them might be over leveraged. They bought at the top. It hasn't really done it. Like, do they have the holding power to keep holding? Yeah, especially if people that invested with them, like these clubs that yeah. have millions and millions of dollars tied up in, in, in whiskey, you know, what are they going to do? You know, they're buy- panicking. Cases and cases and cases of 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 stuff that, that I've seen some of their lists. They have, some of them have multiple multiple cases of of supposedly allocated stuff or or limited release stuff from from major Scotch distilleries, but the, those things haven't really gone anywhere. No, no, and they pay top dollar. I see it. You know, I get phone calls. Hey, you got? I'm like, no, you paid at the height of the market. I, I'll just wait. Yeah, I'm I, had a, I had a call like that today. Guy wanted, uh, he's got uh, um, a McAllen Red, 78-year-old. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and he, wants, he wants to get $90,000 out of it. And I told him, look, it's not going to happen. Yeah, no. No. Well, well, no. The, 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 you know, the... Yeah. <laughs> well, somebody, somebody <laughs> will pay at auction, uh, uh, you know, Eighty-nine thousand. No, so that's what I want. Yeah, because no, well, the rest well, of them are on well, auction too. The auction house. What about what about yeah. the salesman who's going to sell it for you? You know, yeah. you know, if 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 you want if you want ninety, then I'm going to have to sell it for a hundred to to make it worth my while. Yeah, and nobody's going to pay that. I mean, the same no. model was just sold at, a, at an, an auction house uh, last month. You know, roughly four weeks ago for. 60,000 pounds. So if you I was going to say high, si- high 60s in dollars. It was like 68 yeah, grand or so something. $66,000. It's probably 80, $80,000, So Yeah. Why would, if he can get it for, for, for that, why would he pay a hundred? Well, well, and I also chuckle. I, I don't chuckle. I hate to be these guys, but you know, that's gambling. Some of them, but it's not just your bottle that's coming on. There's like five of them. <laughs> Right. It's not like right. you're competing you know, against no somebody else too. Who depends who's the most desperate of the day to just be like fucking cut my losses. You know, so as like you know, like I watched that whole like feeding frenzy last year with the the Yamazaki, what was it, the fifty? And like yeah, they were going nuts. Fifty five. And like they were going nuts for it. And then you know, yeah, like, you the watched first it one sold like, for a million dollars and the last one sold for, <laughs> for, for, for six hundred thousand. Yeah. 
and and now you're seeing them, you know, 385, 425, reserve not met, you know, because like it's just it's it's delusional. And, you know, it's it, the first one, it, it's musical chairs. And the thing is, those guys, the guys who bought them are initially paid like thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 for them. Yeah. Yeah, 46000 I think, or something like that was the number. It's always that first one that gets out. The second and the third, they think they can just keep running with it. And that's where it falls apart. Well, so, it's been a pleasure having you on, my friend, today. I really, I love the perspective. I love the insight and the action. I love, you know, so good meeting you. Look forward to continuing to build this relationship. Look forward to drinking what you sent me. I think that there's this just beautiful moment in whiskey history that we 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 must not forget. Even with everything and all the noise current, like there was a period where really these guys were just showing up to work and making amazing whiskey and there was no money. There was no nothing. And yep. it's super, it's superb whiskey that every time I get a chance to go down the rabbit hole of whiskey history, I jump all over it because it's just different. It is. It just is. Joe, you wanna you wanna plug anything? Any websites or anything you wanna plug? Well, you can go to bonhams.com or bonhamskinner.com and check out uh, our results. We just had an auction that closed this past Thursday. We're doing them every every two months. If anybody wants to uh, contact me, uh they can get me at joseph.hyman at bonhamskinner.com and send me a list. Send me whatever you like, the pictures, whatever you want. I can evaluate them for you. And if you need to uh, sell them, Mike, we can we can work something out. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I look forward to hanging out with you next time. Folks, of, of the Rolex Whiskey Passion Project, it's a wrap on another great one and just... I'm telling you, there's something special. If you get the opportunity and you truly want to experience the past, try to get hold of something older and just enjoy it. And like Joe and I were talking, there's a lot of really great independent bottlers, bottlers that have amazing whiskey from the past that doesn't cost an arm and a leg. And it's just different. And I, you know, open those up. There's not going to, there's no money in those. Of course, if you decide to, you know, someone passes away in your family and you find the old collection that nobody knew was behind the bookshelf and under the stairs you want to call a guy like joe or drink some of it just to enjoy that moment because it doesn't it's not coming back in my opinion joe appreciate you sir i look forward to seeing you again thanks everybody for listening